Well, hello, everyone. Today, we finally get into more scripture. You know, we're gaining speed. First session, we didn't cover any of it. Second session, we covered five verses. Maybe today, we actually get through like 30 verses or something like that. Um, I'm going to start by reading the text, at least the first, well, from verses 6 to 18, and then we will talk about those, and then we will read the second half for today. So it says, A man came sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that everyone might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what, he came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children, children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. John testified about him and shouted out, This one was the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than I am, because he existed before me. For we, all for we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only one, himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Okay. So on the, the blog post, I posted like a, a verse by verse analysis of this, and that's what I'm going to go through. Um, just a quick disclaimer, I don't know if I will always be able to post a blog post like this one. They take a long time to do. So as long as I can, I will do it. Okay. The very first verse, uh, a man came sent from God whose name was John. Um, and I guess I'll read seven as well. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Okay. First point of clarification, uh, and I think many people will know this. But the John that we're talking about here is not the same John who wrote the gospel. Okay, different John, different character. Sometimes people get confused, which is fair. That's fine. Uh, but the John here is John the Baptist. Okay, uh, the John who wrote the gospel is John the Apostle. Um, you know, there were common names back then. You know, there's like a gazillion people called Peter back then, or what we translate as Peter. Uh, but Forgive me, Simon, not Peter, but Simon actually was the most common name at that time. Um, this is just an aside, but you know the apostle Peter, he was Simon Peter, and, and Jesus said, oh, you know, we'll call you Peter. Well, yeah, because there were a bunch of Simons. Okay, for, for the same reason, there's a lot of Johns at the time, uh, two different guys. Okay, um, John the Baptist, he is introduced here, uh, and he appears in the other Gospels as well. He is testifying about Jesus, and John the Apostle, so the writer, is making a very strong case that John the, the Baptist, and I may just say the Baptist to avoid confusion, the Baptist is, he's not, quote-unquote, the real deal, as in he, he himself is not the Messiah, he himself is not the Christ, he is not God, he's testifying about God. Perhaps at the time, that John the Apostle was writing this, there was some kind of polemic. You know, may, perhaps people were kind of aggrandizing John the Baptist. So it was, it was important to be extremely clear. And you see it with the language here, right? Like it, it's even emphasized, he himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Um, and some of the points of contrast jump out uh, readily. For example, uh, John the, the Baptist, talked about the light while Jesus was the light. Uh, John the Baptist practices water baptism while Jesus practices spirit baptism. Um, John the Baptist is a witness and Jesus is, quote unquote, the real deal. He's the Messiah. Now, the, on this word witness, this will come up later, so I just want to touch on it briefly. The Jewish culture um, was kind of quite formal, I suppose, when it come, when it came to presenting evidence in, in disputes, what in today's day we may call, you know, kind of legal disputes or, or a trial. 
In fact, in Jewish law, and this is in the Bible in the Old Testament, you needed at least two, if not three, witnesses to settle a dispute. Well, that is the kind of word that is being used to describe John the Baptist. So, so John the Baptist is supposed to be kind of this credible uh, person who's bringing forth evidence of who Jesus is. Um, an example of this, because Jesus will talk about it later in, in John's gospel, Jesus says the following, and I'm reading here from John 5, 31 through 35. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? What I just explained, that in Jewish law, according to the Old Testament, one witness is not sufficient, right? So that's what he means when he said, my testimony is not true, meaning it's, it's not enough. Then Jesus adds, there is another who testifies about me, and I know the testimony he testifies about me is true. You have sent to John. In that case, again, it's John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Then Jesus adds this kind of interesting parenthetical. I do not accept human testimony, but I say this so that you may be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and shining, and you wanted to rejoice greatly for a short time in his light. Okay. So Jesus also makes clear that he doesn't need actually this second or third witness um, because Jesus is the light himself. Jesus is, is the Christ. He's God himself. So he is in a different position. But to put it this way, or to put it simply, Jesus is kind of saying, fine, I'll play by your rules. There are at least two witnesses, myself and John. So notice how, how important John the Baptist is. Um, now it says that John the Baptist came so that everyone may believe. Now this term everyone is a little bit contentious. Um, in this passage, do we mean um, everyone is in the whole world or do we mean people from that time, you know, people in that place at that time? Uh, not that this would limit the gospel in any way, um, but whenever you see words like everyone or all, it's important to consider the context. You know, this would be true in English as well. This would be true really in any language at any time. If I say, I don't know, I ate all the grapes. Well, I probably didn't eat all the grapes in the whole wide world. I probably ate all the grapes in a certain context, like in the fridge or in my house or something of the sort. Yeah. Um, now, whether in this in this particular passage everyone means just kind of the contemporaries of the time or literally means everyone in the world, it, it will become extremely evident that the gospel is going out to everyone. This is an offer of salvation to everyone, to the whole world. Um, yeah. Now, when... Uh, we see here that John the Baptist is coming as a messenger so that everyone may be saved. This is certainly a throwback to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So Malachi is one of the books in the Old Testament, and he has some prophecies about when the Messiah comes. And when I say Messiah, by the way, or I say Christ, they mean the same thing. Messiah is the Aramaic word that then was transliterated into Greek. So, you know, transliteration is when you just straight up kind of borrow a word from another language. You don't even change it up or or translate it into one of your own words. You just borrow it. Um, think of like when in English we refer to a Mexican hat as a sombrero, right? That's a transliteration. We just took the word from the Spanish language. Um, well, Christ is the Greek word that that means the same thing as Messiah. So if I use either of those words, I, I, I mean the exact same thing. Okay. Well, in Malachi, we have some prophecies about the Messiah and, and the Christ, and that before that happens, it will be a messenger who will testify about the Messiah. And I, I have the quotation there in the blog. It says, I am about to send my messenger who will clear the way before me. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you long for is certainly coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, this idea that there would be a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah was deeply ingrained in the Jewish culture and psyche. Uh, this will come up later in conversation, so I'm going to leave that thought just kind of hanging there, but, but I'll revisit that. Um, another thought that might come to mind is 
this idea that the light is coming, right? The logos, we talked about that last time, is coming to the world. God himself is coming to the world. But there is now kind of this witness to, to the light, this witness to God. Um, and I think this sets up um, a sort of tension, I guess, if we want to put it like that, um, about how God interacts with the world. Right, I, I I find that people who who are non-believers, particularly, uh, are generally kind of dissatisfied with uh, how God interacts with the world in the sense that either God does things too supernaturally or not supernaturally enough. Right, like you may hear somebody say, "What doesn't God just like write His name in the stars or something like that?" Um, but then you have miracles in the Bible, and it's like Shh, you can't trust anything supernatural. So it's like, well, do you, like do you want that or do you not want that? Well, I, I and I say this to point out that God, to again to put this colloquially takes this world very seriously, right? God is working kind of within our rules. Uh, God sends a, a witness who is a person who tells us about the Christ uh, in, in a sense, ordinary means. Um, and that, that idea really continues on because then the witnesses to the Christ become the apostles. But then once Christ leaves us, um, right? He, he, he goes up to heaven. Um, then the witnesses of Christ are the church, those who believe in Christ. So there's always actually this dynamic of God works within our world, generally using ordinary methods. Of course, there are miracles, I'm not denying those, but really most of the time, he works through people, he works through testimony, he works in the ordinary ways. Um, then the next verse says, the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is this idea of light and enlightening and truth, uh, which are which are quite related to one another. It's really interesting because Greek philosophers, whenever they would think of enlightenment, of of you know giving of truth, the Greeks would have probably emphasized the idea of knowledge, right? Like if all truth was given to me then I would be given all knowledge. Like now I would know, I mean, I don't know. I can only come up with silly examples at this point, but I would know how to build a spaceship or something, or I would know all the scientific facts because um, all knowledge has been given to me. But in the Jewish tradition, when they spoke about truth and enlightenment, the emphasis was more on moral truth, right? And so... And I think this makes a lot of sense. Like when Christ came, he didn't come to teach us science or, or history, uh, right? He's not writing textbook after textbook, but what is Christ doing? Christ is revealing the character of God and he's living a perfect life, showing us how we ought to live and, and effectively describing God to us, right? Which I, I think is a much deeper, and at least for me, much more interesting idea of enlightenment and truth. I'd rather know that which is good, then that, in a sense, just which is, just knowledge about the world and such. Um, well, um, notice again that John the Baptist in, in John 5, 35, which we read a minute ago, is described as a lamp, while Jesus is being described as the light. This is imagery that you will still, in a sense, hear Christians uh, use today, and I think is quite appropriate. Uh, Christians will oftentimes say that they want to reflect the goodness of God, right? That we are acknowledging that, that Christ is the light. Christ is a source of goodness. And what we can do is reflect that. Um, then verse 10, uh, it's weird to go from verse to verse without like any questions. So <laughs> I'm sure there will be questions at the end where you guys can disagree with me on this stuff. <laughs> Um, in verse 10, um, it says, he was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. This, these two verses, sorry, I read 10 and 11, also are, are quite fascinating for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, when it says he was in the world, the Greek uses the present participle, 
that is the kind of verb tense that implies something that is ongoing, okay? Not something that happened just like one time. Um, well, scholars and church fathers, so really there seems to be quite a bit of agreement on this, interpreted that phrase to mean that the word, the logos, Jesus, was active in the world up to this point, meaning that it's not like Jesus was completely absent from the story, so to speak. And then at this point, he kind of enters the story for the first time, but that Jesus has been active in history up to this point. And finally, what happens in this point, what's different about it is that he becomes flesh, right? That he becomes a man. Um, and then we have this idea that although the truth itself, the creator becomes man, the world did not recognize him. And moreover, his own people did not receive him. Now, that phrase did not receive him implies active rejection. And I'm not just coming up with that out of thin air. In the Gospel of John, John uses that same phrasing later on to imply exactly that, deliberate rejection. Okay, And so notice kind of the dichotomy here. The world probably refers to the non-Jewish people, like the Gentiles. And when I say Gentiles, that's literally what I mean. I mean non-Jewish people. Um, so the Gentiles did not recognize Jesus at all. Uh, they did not know anything about him. How could they? They did not have the scripture that uh, the Jewish people had. Um, but the Jewish people had their scripture. They had their Old Testament. They had the prophecies. So it's not that they did not know about Jesus, but they rejected him. Now, there was a common story, so to speak, at the time, um, which said that the Torah, remember the Torah is, is the first five books of the Old Testament, but it, it can reflect, it can, it can essentially mean the, the Bible, so to speak, the Word of God. So the, the Word of God had been offered to all the nations of the world, but only Israel had accepted it. That's not exactly how the Old Testament puts it. So I'm not saying that I agree with that story, but that was, at any rate, a very common way of phrasing things at the time. And this kind of turns it on its head because John here writes, no, that Jesus, who is the, the, the fulfillment of the Torah, is kind of being offered to the world. Most of the world did not know him. But Israel did not accept him. Israel actually did worse. They rejected him. Okay, so so that is a kind of a a, a slap in the face uh, to Israel to to his audience, um, or or non-believers who would have been in his audience, anyways. Then it then it goes on to verse twelve. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Okay. Again, there's so much stuff in this verse. All of these verses are just so loaded with, with, you know, kind of background and implications and all that. Um, let me talk about that last phrase first. He has given the right to become God's children. In today's culture, in the United States, because we have been heavily influenced by the Bible, it is common for us to speak of everyone as being uh, one of God's children, right? You, you hear it all the time, even from people who are not even remotely Christian, you might hear from a movie star or something going, oh, we're all God's children. That's not biblical at all. Um, the In the New Testament, it never says that we're all God's children. It says that those who believe in Jesus are God's children, which is a huge distinction. Now, the Bible does say, in the Old Testament particularly, that all people are made in the image of God, okay? So all people have dignity. All people matter. I am not denying that now, not one bit. But to say that all people have dignity, that all people matter, that God loves all people, that God wishes all people to be saved, all that is true. But this idea of becoming God's children is something else, is something in a sense more. Think of what when you hear this phrase of becoming God's children, think of standing, particularly legal standing. Um, when you, as a child of someone, 
you have certain rights, particularly to inheritance, right? Um, think of, you know, whatever company you work for, if you're employed by somebody, you, you might be self-employed, but let's say that you work for somebody else and that somebody else has children and, and your boss is actually quite wealthy. Well, your status as an employee is vastly different from the status of a child, right? You will not inherit your boss's stuff. It will not be yours one day. But if your boss adopted you, then you enter into this completely different relationship where whatever is his will be yours. And that is how the Bible speaks of believers, essentially that. We enter into this relationship with God where we will inherit, in a sense, everything, right? Heaven, the new, the new heavens and the earth. Um, so it is, it is quite incredible. In that, that word, when it says he has given the right it can that could that could just as well be translated authority. Okay, so believers in Christ have the right; they have the authority to be God's children, essentially to demand your legal rights. Which is it? It almost makes you blush, right? To 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 think of it like that. Like I can demand heaven because I have believed in the name of Christ. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we should become full of ourselves and perhaps speak in those terms, but what I am suggesting is that uh, the promises of, of God are that serious. Um, and then how do you become one of God's children? Well, those who believe in his name. You're gonna see this phrase all the time or this idea of believing in somebody's name or acting in somebody's name, you know, praying in somebody's name and so forth. Somebody's name, is a stand-in for that person. Um, so it's it's not a separate thing. Um, in this case, a God's name was used like that all the time, right? Think of, you know, you shall not take God's name in vain um, because the name is, is a stand-in for the person. It's like you should not, you will not take God in vain, so to speak. Um, and so that phrase, those who believe in his name, it is to say those who believe in Jesus. Um, and then verse 13. Can I uh, pause you there to Absolutely. Let, ev let everybody know who, uh, if you're interested in a asking a question or raising a point of discussion at the end, uh, please just write question in the chat and I will uh, randomize those uh, who are looking to speak and I will pull you in when Robert is finished up. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, and then verse 13, which is, it's not even a full sentence here, but it's a follow-up of verse 12 here. Going, children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. Okay. So look at the distinction it's making. Those who believe in Christ will become God's children. And this is not like children born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision. That, that last phrase, by the way, by a husband's decision, uh, I'm going to ignore it only for the sake of time. But it's, a, it's just kind of a cultural phrase that um, it could refer to a couple of different things. At the time, uh, apparently the thought was that children were made from the husband's seed and the woman's blood. Um, or at least that's how it was spoken of normally. Um, and so kind of the, it's the husband who chooses whether a child will be made or not. But again, I'll, I'll leave it at that because it's not as theologically relevant, really. Um, but it's making this distinction that to become a child of God, you cannot do it by your genetics. You got to do it by the Spirit. You got to do it by believing in Jesus. Now, for us today, this doesn't carry any weight, right? It, 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 it hardly kind of hits us in the face. But to a Jewish person from the time, this is nothing short of scandalous, right? Because the, the Jewish people thought that they were special. They were God's children because they were of the seed of Abraham. Essentially, because they were Jewish, they were in, so to speak, right? Because they were Jewish, they had a special relationship with God and they were entitled to the inheritance whatever whatever we want to mean by that. Um, but here, John is writing, no, 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 that's not going to do it. You actually have to be born of the Spirit. Um, and we're going to get this story later on in John 3, uh, chapter 3, 
that talks about Nicodemus. And I'll summarize it again for the sake of time, but Nicodemus was a devout Jewish man. Um, he goes to Jesus and says, um, let me, I'm just going to pick a, a very close. Okay, here. Uh, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you had that you do unless God is with him. Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. And we will talk more about the story at that time, but notice this dichotomy is, is already being set up, that belonging to a certain family on earth doesn't do it. You must be born of the spirit by belief in Christ. Um, this is a recurring theme, which is why I'm emphasizing it so much at this point. Then verse 14, now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth who came from the father. Okay. Particularly when we hit verse 14, how am I doing on time? Okay. I have a few more minutes, particularly when we hit verse 14, there are strong parallels between what John is saying and chapters 33 and, and 34 in Exodus. I posted kind of a summary of those chapters in the blog, but I, I'll go ahead and summarize them here. In, in verse 33, Moses is receiving the Torah. He is receiving the law at Mount Sinai. And there is this particular scene um, where Moses says, Lord, I, if I, if essentially, if you favor me, if <laughs> to put it kind of in a silly way, if you like me, uh, let me see your glory. Okay. Which is to say, I want to see you. And God responds, no one can see my face and live. Okay. So it's like God is saying, no one can come in full contact with me and, and live it is and there's other verses that might explain that this idea that um, essentially no one who is sinful can can abide in the presence of, of God. Um, but in in these first few verses of John, that tension is resolved because Christ is God. Christ is the full reflection of God. Whoever has seen Christ is in the Father. And yet people are not dropping dead, right? Um, so it, and and here we can get real theological, real theological as to why kind of why, why that is happening exactly. But uh, we don't really have to speculate that much because uh, there's a particular verse that, that I wanted to read from, um, from Philippians that Philippians, by the way, is one of the later letters in the New Testament where it talks about how Christ had to humble himself to become man. So it says, uh, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, I just want to emphasize already the sacrifice of Christ. We always think of Christ's sacrifice as being the cross, and certainly that is the ultimate sacrifice. I don't want to take away from that one bit, but there is already a sacrifice in becoming man, in God taking on flesh. There is an emptying. There is a humbling, and I don't think it would be inappropriate to say perhaps there is even a level of humiliation in doing so, but Christ does so that men can see God. Right. That unlike in the Old Testament where God says, no, you can see part of me, but not all of me. Now Christ can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Um, so the parallels between the two stories are uh, really are, are quite beautiful. Um, and, and it is beautiful how the story connects from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, now, 
um, when it says, let me go back to that verse right quick. When it says the glory of the one and only, okay, depending on the translation that you're reading, it's going to say the one and only or the only begotten, right? Uh, I think most translations say only begotten, uh, but there's honestly quite a few that say one and only uh, at any rate. The word that you're seeing there, and I don't know that I can pronounce this correctly, but it's monogenous. And that word does mean only son or only begotten, but it was also used uh, fairly uh, commonly to refer to things that were unique. Okay? In fact, probably the most significant example of that is that that, that very word was used in relation to divine wisdom, right? And remember how logos is is highly connected to wisdom, to the word Sophia. Um, so th this idea of one and only or only begotten, sure, it, it denotes to some extent this idea of being begotten, but it's really emphasizing that Christ is unique. There's, there's no one like him. There's nothing like him. Um, Another point there, a very quick point, is that in Jewish culture, uh, if you know a son is the one who would carry the legacy of the family in quite practical ways, uh, meaning, for example, that the land that belonged to that family would eventually go to that son. Um, and let's say that the father of the family died first, uh, the land goes to the son, and now the son can take care of the mother and the sisters. Right, so a family with no son may be in a very difficult condition, and if a family only had one son, because at least if you have multiple sons and one passes away, the other ones can step up, and I, and I mean that legally, not just you know, not just from a standpoint of behavior. So the the expression of talking of an only son uh, sometimes was applied to things that were not an only son, but it, it meant, look, I care for you or I care for this thing like if it was my only son, meaning I care for this thing greatly. In fact, kind of as much as I can care about anything. Uh, think of like the English expression, you know, they're the coolest things in sliced bread. Well, sliced bread is a stand-in for something really cool. Uh, the, the idea of an only son would be like that. Um, I, I'll finish that couple more verses and then I'll, I'll turn it over to questions. Um, then verse 15, uh, John, now again, this is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, testified about him and shouted out, this one was the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. So in, in uh, Jewish culture, there was a great respect for people who are older, right? Essentially, somebody who was older, think of it like the military, I think is the closest we can get to. Um, somebody who has more seniority than you do is, is above you. They're your superior. Well, the same happened in Jewish culture. Somebody who was older than you was greater than you. They were above you. Um, and so here, John the Baptist is making the point, Christ came before me. Right, because he always was. He's eternal. Um, because John the Baptist started his ministry before Christ did, and presumably John the Baptist was older. No, not presumably. I know that for a fact. John the Baptist was older, um, and and so it's important to make the point that John the Baptist was older only from a human perspective, but Christ was truly older because Christ is eternal. Um, verse sixteen: For we have all received from His fullness one from his fullness, one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. And I'll go ahead and read um, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only one himself, God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Okay. So, um, verse 16, we have received, you know, one gracious gift after another. Uh, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Christ. Okay, Grace and truth, those are huge, huge concepts. When we're talking about grace, I think the main idea that should come to our minds, perhaps not the only, but the main idea is this idea of um, covenantal 
love. Okay, so the, the kind of love that establishes a certain relationship that the one giving you love will not break. Okay, he will honor that. And, and there is this relationship of superior and inferior where the inferior cannot demand this love. Um, so you have kind of this more powerful party, the superior party uh, going, look, I love you and I am making this pact with you, this covenant with you, uh, this contract with you, if you want to say, and I will keep it. Not because I have to, you cannot force me to keep it, but I will do it because that's who I am. Okay. So it's a, it's a beautiful concept. Um, this idea of grace comes up a lot in, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, where you, you would have a patron and then you have somebody um, who would be, you know, favored, sponsored by that patron. Now this relationship actually also demanded something from the person being sponsored, right? That person was to be loyal to the patron okay? um, and truth. And the idea of truth is like I discussed earlier, is this idea that we're not talking knowledge in the sense of like, you know, just facts about the world, but truth as in moral truth and faithfulness, right? To say that God is true is that he's true to his word. God is true to his character. God will never lie or go back on his promises. And we can see that fully in Christ. Um, and of course, wh why do we see that fully in Christ? We're going to see that throughout the rest of the book because of, of Christ, of who he is and what he has done. Um, and the last verse there, verse 18, which I already read, that no one has ever seen God except for Christ. And I'm paraphrasing. I already discussed this idea that, that um, Christ comes to the world and, and he fully... Uh, is able to represent God because he is God himself. So whoever has seen him has seen God. Um, something that even Moses in the past, who is kind of the greatest figure of the Old Testament, even he had not been able to see that. Um, well, I meant to get to verses 19 through 39 as well, but there's no way that I can do that. So at this point, I'm going to open it up to questions and comments. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, I just see a couple of people interested in speaking, yep. so we should have no problem getting through those. Uh, yep. And if uh, if there are, I do see a couple questions in the chat as well. And um, just if if you're looking to ask those and and I don't get to you, just type question in the chat so I know that you want to be pulled in. Um, that'll distinguish for me between questions among yourselves that you're just discussing and questions that you want to bring up uh, by voice with Robert. So let's start with uh, Red Falcor first. Hey, thanks, Matt. Uh, am I coming in okay? Yeah. D you actually unmuted yourself. I thought I had everyone force muted, but maybe not. Uh, maybe you I don't even understand this. <laughs> probably gave permission and then I did it. That's oh, my closest okay. guess. Well, whatever. Uh, how, however right. it works. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, I decided uh, not to get baptized because uh, after many mm. discussions with uh, religious friends and my uh, pastor, the key for me seemed to be that, you know, there's two questions that you have to answer in the affirmative in order to get baptized. And as to what those two questions mean exactly it appears that they have a supernatural meaning. And this is consistent with my pastor's beliefs, as far as I can tell. He believes in a lot of supernatural activity. Um, demons uh, asking for God to do something in the real world, and he does it uh, basically right then and there. I, I would like the rain to stop, and then the rain to stop. And then the rain stops, for example. And so I was not at a point where I could get on board with that. And because I assumed I would not be able to answer those two questions fully in the affirmative, uh, in the affirmative, I did not want to lie to a holy man. So, so, so I opted out of the baptism. And, uh, but I heard a, a clip from Jordan Peterson last night, which I think is, kind of what you were talking about t t today, Robert, regarding um, truth, like the tr tr 
truth about what you can do versus moral truth. And Peterson describes this as the difference between objective truth and narrative truth. And he himself sees these intersect regularly in his own life. And I'm not yet at the level of analysis, as he liked to, likes to say, where, where I can even fully understand what he means. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that. So can I ask you, what are the two questions that they were going to ask you before being baptized? Sure. Uh, I just, just, just pulled them up, but it was... Um, Yeah, I'm sorry. Give me uh, just one moment. But it was something like, do, do, do you accept Jesus is the Son of God? And also, do, do, do you accept Jesus as your personal Savior? Mm-hmm. And because I could not reconcile the, the, those two questions with the implication of the supernatural, I could not answer them in the affirmative. I see. Um, well, then, um, I don't know that in in the time that we have, I can give a kind of the full response that I would like to give because it's the kind of thing that you know I would like I would love to discuss for an hour. But sure. let me try to give at least some kind of response to that. Um, uh, the Bible is decidedly supernatural. Okay, I just want to get that out there so that nothing that I say ever sounds like I'm taking away from that. There are miracles in it. Uh, just like God created the world, God can intervene in the world. So could God make a unicorn appear in front of me right this second? Yes, he could. I don't think he's going to, but he could. Um, now, um, you know, some people may say that miracles have ceased at this point. I don't really want to get into that controversy, but depending on what church you go to, they may think that more or fewer miracles are happening nowadays, depending on where you go. Um, at any rate, uh, to address really the, the important point of this, um, the idea is that Christ, you know, being the Son of God, living a perfect life, he died on the cross, and by doing so, he satisfied the demand for justice. So, um, people, you know, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short, we've all done some bad stuff. And God is love, but God is also justice. So God can't just let it go, right? God can't just say, oh, it's fine, whatever. Let's just move on. Um, And so to reconcile his love and his justice, God provides the perfect sacrifice. Essentially, God takes it out, so to speak, on his own son. uh, So that punishment is is dealt. Um, And then our response simply has to be to react in faith. Now, faith does not mean believing in something we have no good reason to believe right oftentimes people say oh just have faith like even if it's probably not right just go ahead and believe it no to have faith is to trust to say yeah i do trust that christ paid for my sins that christ is enough uh that christ essentially exactly what i said he is enough and he will deliver me in the end um and honestly whether you believe that god continues to do miracles today or not doesn't really factor in the equation. Although, like I said, I, I truly do believe in miracles, uh, but that's that's a separate issue, if, if that helps at all. Okay, thanks, Red Falcor. I may have a question related to those themes myself toward the end, but I wanna give uh, some of our other participants a chance to discuss as well, and I don't wanna just repeat the same topic. So let's try uh, uh, Donald. You're good to go if you're ready. Hey, Matt. Hey, Robert. Am I coming hey. through? Yes, sir. Loud and clear. Okay, great. Robert, so in the day of John the Baptist, what is baptism and what does it mean? And then with Jesus, what is baptism and what does it mean? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I I had been thinking about this, honestly. Um, I didn't go into it just for the sake of time, but um, in I, I'm assuming that you're asking this because you probably have kind of an answer as well. So I'll be interested to hear what you have to say. But um, baptism um, as a symbol, at least 
Water baptism. I'm talking the idea of literally dunking somebody in the water. Okay, the, the kind of the physical act. Um, particularly, the New Testament seems to connect that with the idea of death. So, in baptism, water is representing like your grave. Think of the ground. You're being put on the ground. You you are dead now because you're you're sharing in Christ's death. And as you come out of the water, you're being essentially revived, right? So you like like Christ came back to life. So do so do we. Um, but I think the symbolism can can also have kind of this this double entendre in the sense that the water symbolizes even more. Water was used all the time to symbolize the giving of life and the idea of cleansing. And so it seems to me that all those things are happening at once. You're being purified, you're being given life, and you're sharing in Christ's death, and then life, right? This second life. Um, and But water is just a symbol. It can't, it can't do it in itself. It is the Spirit of God that can truly do that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm avoiding the conversation about whether it's a sacrament or merely symbolic, so, I, <laughs> so I'm going to avoid that for now. Um, what, what would you say, Don? Well, you know, as a lifer, <laughs> I'll, I'll say that I'm, I'm familiar with all of it to the point of ignorance. <laughs> I'll put it that way. So that's really why uh, that's really what I was looking for is what were the pers- what was the perspective of the people that were being baptized by John? And I, I think you did clarify that they were there. Well, he was he was calling people to repentance. So they were were did they think of themselves as dying to past life? I, How did they think of it? As far as you know, I am unclear how people thought of it when John the Baptist was doing it, right? Because just for everybody to kind of know the timeline, John the Baptist comes first and he's baptizing people in water. Now the practice of baptism was already around. John the Baptist was not the first one to ever do it. Um, And then this practice gets continued on. And like I said, by the time that say uh, Paul is baptizing people, it is certainly representing this idea of death and resurrection. But at, at John's time, John the Baptist, I suspect that they were thinking more of it as purification and kind of preparing themselves to receive the, the life that was coming because the Messiah was coming. I don't, I don't know that they were truly connecting it to death and resurrection yet, but they certainly do by the end of the story. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Donald. Okay, next up, uh, we do have a few more questions, so I think we'll be able to get through the rest of our uh, question askers or, or people with uh, commentary if we're able to make a good pace here. So let's try VV. Uh, VV, are you there? Uh, hey there. Can you hear me? Good. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, so Robert, you had mentioned um belief in jesus christ uh being uh, uh, I, I guess the avenue for salvation and i know that folks in the uh i guess protestant christian uh faith kind of there there's some sort of uh divide of um salvation by works and salvation by grace and there's a minor commentary, but I'm also requesting some reflection and uh, thoughts from your end as well, is that uh, I come from a denomination, Seventh-day Adventism, that's what I was kind of born and raised in. Uh, I've kind of backed away from it um, a little bit because uh, just I, I quarrel with some of the doctrines within the within the church. But uh, anyways, uh, salvation by works, uh, I, I see some folks uh, – have conflict with that because uh, fundamentally Christianity teaches that you must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Um, And I think something that's lost in translation is that we act out our faith through our works and our works is a reflection of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then also vice versa, that um, we do these things because we have faith in Jesus Christ. And I think um, a lot of denominations, and specifically Seventh-day Adventism with, uh, with Baptists and um, non-denominational folks, tend to miss that uh, when discussing salvation. Um, what are your thoughts about 
maybe some of the debate or confusion regarding salvation by faith and salvation by works. Yeah. Uh, so you, you are hitting on one of the big topics, right? So the, for, for, I, I think probably everyone here is somewhat aware, but you get the reformation in the 1500s, right? And that's when a bunch of uh, Christians split off of the Catholic church. And one of the main issues, not the only, but one of the main issues was salvation by faith alone. What normally they call sola fide in Latin. Um, and I would say, to, to, to be honest, that the divide is not so much in whether salvation by faith or salvation by works, but if you really look into it, I, I think that you, you'll find that the distinction is in how that, essentially in how the grace of God is is dispensed to people and that's going to bring in the sacraments let, let me explain what i mean by this the catholics for example they believe that um you know they through faith in christ then christ enables them to do good works and those good works are um part of the sanctification process and all of this is subsumed within the idea of salvation but i to to some extent and I'm, I'm treading on very contentious waters here, but to some extent you could still say the Catholic believes in salvation by faith because even the good works and, and sanctification is only due to, to the power of Christ and by placing one's faith in Christ. Um, the the Baptist, let's say, the, who, who would be a Protestant, would say, no, no, these are two separate processes. Salvation is just comes from faith in Christ, and then they're doing good works and all that, that's sanctification, which is a different thing. It's not part of salvation. But really, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a fine distinction, which I'm not saying is irrelevant. Um, I think the true distinction is whether sacraments are necessary for salvation or not. That's really where you're going to find the fight. Essentially, a Protestant will generally say, Faith in itself is alone for salvation. Nothing else is required. But some other denominations perhaps say, yeah, you've got to believe, but you also must be baptized or you also must be, say, confirmed or you must have your last rites and so forth. And I'm not saying Catholics all believe that. I'm just saying those are examples. Um, and, and so, yeah, per, some denominations say certain actions are required in addition to placing your faith in Christ. Okay, thanks, VV. Uh, Brian has a quick comment about baptism, which seems to be a common theme tonight. So let's see what Brian has to say. Yeah, just adding to Robert's point, um, baptism was was a conversion ritual to Judaism. Uh, when when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they would undergo various ritual cleansings, i.e., baptism, and be circumcised. For a Jew, a, a Jew is circumcised at birth, so coming to they can't be recircumcised as an adult um, unless they, well, there's a whole other thing about uncircumcision, but I'm not going to get into that. But the coming to John to be baptized was essentially their way of, of acknowledging that up to that point, they had not lived as a Jew or they had lapsed from Judaism. So it was kind of them acknowledging they hadn't been faithful to their heritage. So as time went on, well, as, as Christianity spread and baptism took on a distinctly Christian meaning, ironically, a, a more biblical meaning, water is, con is consistently a symbol for death and life. Like, like uh, the primordial chaos was, was water. When God flooded the earth, that he basically reset cre uh, creation. Passing through the Red Sea was a symbolic death and resurrection. So by then it became a symbol of death and resurrection, participation in Christ's death and resurrection. But to answer the, the, the previous question, the meaning of John's baptism was basically, uh, we haven't been, essentially we haven't been living according to Judaism and now we want to repent. But uh, that's, all, that's all I had. Thank you okay. for adding that. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Brian. Did you have any additional thoughts on that, Robert? Or No, I think that's, that's accurate. I, Okay. I did not recall that part that when, yeah, when proselytes would convert to uh, Judaism, baptism may be part of the process. So yes, that certainly is very relevant to this. 
Uh, Chris also has a question about baptism. Chris, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I really uh, appreciate uh, the question posed by Donald about the difference between the baptism of John and the, the baptism into Christ, because they are different. And the reason we know that, and I, you know, I know the scope of our study is, is the book of John, but the book of Acts follows John, and that's kind of where the rubber starts hitting the road, so to speak, in the, the uh, establishment of the, the New Testament church. And there's thousands of baptisms that happen in the book of Acts. And there's several, quite a few examples, but just, just to cite two, there's one, there's a discussion at the, at the end of Acts chapter 18, when uh, Apollos, uh, basically, he, he taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus, so he knew only the baptism of John. <clears throat> he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but Priscilla and Aquila, they were teachers. When they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of, of God more accurately, okay? And then, in particular, in the beginning of the next chapter, which is in the book, which is Acts chapter 19, uh, it says, and it happened while the Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what men were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, so there was, they were baptized again. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good observation. Thank you for pointing that out. And that verse makes it quite explicit that, yeah, there was the first baptism, the baptism of water had this idea of repentance. Um, like, like we were just discussing of kind of, we, we've messed up. We're recommitting ourselves to put it colloquially. And, uh, yeah. And then there's the baptism of Christ. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Chris. Okay. We are right up against the top of the hour, so I figure it's probably... Uh, we, we're through all of our uh, people wishing to speak, at least at the moment, so I figure that's probably a good point to end. Uh, but did you have any closing thoughts you wanted to offer, Robert? I, I did not know. Did you have a question you wanted to ask, or ha is it so um, late now you want to leave it for next Well, time? Red Falco was getting into these themes about the supernatural, and there was one thing that you said about God operating in this world. And I think you were just speaking sort of off the cuff rather than with deliberate intent, but mm -hmm. you, you kind of mentioned, um, he, he works some, something to the effect of according to our rules. Mm -hmm. And I, I know what you mean. Like the rules of the natural world as we understand yes. it, not as though like we are owners yes. of that, but Correct. I guess what was, I'm, so I'm not trying to like get you on that point. What, what's interesting to me is, effectively, I mean, under this framework, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're all God's rules, uh, mm -hmm. the supernatural and the natural world as we understand it. It's just the distinction between, say, natural rules like gravity and supernatural, I guess, to me, like, where does that line exist other than one is very common and one is just something that is uh, like a one-time event or completely unheard of and just the definitions of terms because there are things that are that occur all the time that are very, very rare but still able to be explained by the quote unquote natural rules, you know? So, I, but that's something I figure will come up later. So I didn't want to get caught up on that point. No, but I'm glad you said that, but you know, <laughs> perhaps I spoke too colloquially there because that, that is exactly what I meant when I said by our rules. I mean, yeah. God off like in, in the majority of times, God interacts with us according to the rules of the universe. Like it's normal people speaking, using a normal voice, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But then every so often, God may literally speak like from the sky in a miraculous way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what I was trying to say there is, I feel like people complain either way. Like if people does it in an odd way, people are like, oh, I can't believe that. But yeah. if people does it through a regular person, it's like, no, I can't believe him. So it's yeah. like, okay, whatever. There's no winning here. But yeah. I, I actually agree with you that from God's standpoint, this, the, the distinction between natural and supernatural is just not there. Um, hmm. I, I don't know if that's something that you were alluding to or not. Perhaps I misunderstood. But if no, God. Yeah, I'm, that, that line or that distinction I have interest in, but it, I'm sure it's bound to come up later. Uh, you know? yeah, it might not I, be particularly relevant to this section of verses. Uh, 
So next time, or the first time that we cover one of the miracles, I guess, I'll make a point yeah. to talk about that, how we can properly define a miracle um, because I think they're oftentimes kind of misunderstood and misdefined. So I'll make a mental note to get into that whenever we go over Jesus's first miracle. Sure. Okay, well, that will uh, do it for the study tonight. And just as a reminder, um, if you missed any part of the study, there is an audio recording posted in Robert's blog that's linked on the Bible study page of my website, linked on the homepage, uh, if you're trying to find it. You are also welcome to get in touch with Robert if you have a question that comes up later or maybe you weren't able to ask. There is a form to contact Robert there. And any other questions, again, about just um, formatting or organizational topics or just you know, things that, that come to your mind as a participant, you can also message me about those. And uh, as we've as we've been saying, we want to make this uh, something that works for the group. So if people have thoughts about just organizational things, do send those my way as well. But uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining. And of course, we'll be back next Saturday night. Thanks.